Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. drive ahead of me. One of the benefits of driving this electric car is that I can talk to myself and there won't be too much engine noise in the background because there is no engine. Quite sold on electric cars. One trouble is though I'm going quite a distance so I won't be able to run the air conditioning because it will take the battery really quickly. I came across a tweet this morning by Crest BD, and they were talking about a new study that's coming out, or that they're starting, on bipolar disorder, titled, Do Ambitious and Exploratory Behaviors Drive Creativity in Bipolar Disorder? in search of a mechanism. So they're searching for a mechanism of creativity in bipolar disorder in order to better support people's strengths or be more strengths-based in somebody's recovery. And that sounds lovely. But I kind of wonder, is there a mechanism to creativity or is it that we're so mechanized as a humanity not as one person with bipolar disorder or whatever but it's sort of flabbergasting for someone to have something called an illness a mental illness yet have this gift, this real capacity for creativity. So maybe by discovering a mechanism they can support people in their recovery, but I don't know if creativity can be mechanized or if it's something that I'm not sure what I'm saying, but we're so mechanized as human beings into functioning in society. And so many of us have lost our creativity throughout our lives, if we were even in touch with it at all. Though we likely were as children. And since creativity is so repressed and underexpressed because we're so mechanized as human beings it's overexpressed in a few individuals relatively few and then they're said to have this mental illness called bipolar disorder yet how is somebody with such a disorder 
such a defect, such an illness, to be so wonderfully creative at times. So what is that all about? What is the mechanism? But in my mind, we were all wonderfully and perfectly creative as children before we were mechanized. And then as a mechanized adult, we look at people who have broken out of this mechanism or, or temporarily break out of this mechanism and are restored to natural innate creativity and say, well, what is the mechanism? When perhaps we need to look at the mechanisms that prevent us all from being that creative. It just seems to be this state of amnesia in us all that we forget how we came here as human beings. And it says, do ambitious and exploratory behaviors drive this creativity? Well, we had ambitious and exploratory behaviors as children. And why don't we all have ambitious and exploratory behaviors? And if we all did, maybe a few, relatively few, wouldn't need to overcompensate for this because we are one consciousness. So if there's a natural capacity in humanity as a whole that is not unfolding and manifesting and expressing as that energy of creativity, then it's going to break through in some because our brain is so full of mechanisms that block the creativity. So it's not we need another mechanism to describe this creativity. It's seeing that we're so full of mechanisms that block the creativity. And then the mechanized minds of professionals are trying to just find this mechanism. Creativity is an energy that breaks all mechanisms and thus cannot be mechanized. But one can look from the outside of creativity looking in as a scientific observer and say, what is the mechanism? But it's energy that is breaking down the mechanisms of the ego, of our programming, of our conditioning. And we're restored to our original ambitious and exploratory nature as human beings. But apparently, it's okay to explore as scientists. It's okay to explore if we have certain professionals. But a normal human being is thought to be abnormal if they all of a sudden become ambitiously exploratory. But maybe we need to all be more ambitiously exploratory. So to me, it just seems strange and I feel this creative energy that breaks through the mechanization if we're able to integrate that we can actually share with people about this creative energy the creative energy sharing with the mechanized So the creative energy that comes in doesn't want to be re-mechanized and that's where the resistance 
comes in. And not that there's no place for any kind of mechanization, but it's been overemphasized. And so it's overemphasized in the many. And few have the energy break through it because it's a false structure. Not because there's an illness there. It's a false structure. So it's a mistake to take this false operating system of humanity to be who we are. And to take a breakdown in that to be a problem or an illness. It's actually a creative act to break down all that which would stand in the way of one's creativity. And this can be taken to mean that we should just do whatever we want and just go crazy and that's not what it is at all. If we were never mechanized away from our original creative action and exploration and perception and learning and discovery, we would be completely different human beings as a collective humanity right now. So when one later in life, after this long period of time of mechanization, whether it's 10 years or 20 years before that breakdown happens that gets labeled as a mental illness called bipolar disorder, well, there's a big earthquake. It's, it's not just little ripples of learning. It's breaking down all that which was preventing one's creativity and learning all along and having to start from scratch. So it's like having to start from being five years old again because that's when we started to be mechanized by education, by our family. And we take mechanization, memorization to be learning and it's not. Learning is discovering for oneself through ambitious and exploratory behaviors. But our ambitious and exploratory behaviors are painted over by the programs of society. We're told what to think, what to do, when to do it. It doesn't mean there's not a place for where, what, when, why, and how. But when we're able to discover that for ourselves, we don't need this overlay of programs to modulate our lives. So this creative energy comes in and breaks up this false modulation that we take to be ourselves. And then it's difficult, it's challenging because we don't really know what our self is anymore. We can think the TV across the room is ourselves. And this goes back to, again, moving back to a place of being childlike and really having to figure things out fresh again. Because all of that programming is just scar tissue. And we take it to be so valuable. And the process of recovery is often just trying to re-implant that scar tissue through which to adjust our lives to. Whereas the creative energy would have us moving and acting fluidly moment to moment. And this is seen as a problem because we're not able to function. But again, if we were never all warped away from our original creative trajectory, 
we would be very well acquainted with perception and action and moving fluidly and creatively in the moment. Being really sensitive to the moment and not all full of these false structures and programs. So it takes a while to learn this again. And it's even more difficult because we're surrounded by all the programming of society and all the pressure of that moving us back into functioning the way we've been programmed to function. But once that creative energy breaks all that, it's very difficult for that to stay intact. It takes medication and it takes psychosocial rehabilitation. It takes rec therapy. It takes so many things to get the brain and nervous system to again somewhat falsely reorient itself towards and within that false structure. But one can learn to walk in both worlds while taking medications or not. It's an exploration. An exploration to learn how to live with what is superimposed upon us and what is our superhuman potential and how to balance those. And when we're able to do that, it doesn't necessarily manifest the same way. So I just find it so fascinating how as adults, as scientists, as whatever, we forget. We forget about what it's like to be a child and have that exploratory creativity. It's a creativity that comes about by exploring. So in a way, the exploratory behavior the ambitious exploratory behavior does give rise to this epiphenomenon of creativity. But it's not really this separate epiphenomenon. It's not a mechanism. It's, it's the very nature of our nervous system. It's our very nature to explore. We have eyes. We have hands. We have mouths. We have touch. We have taste. We have smell. We have sight. We have sound. And we've lost our ability to explore with those aspects of our being. And then when one gets reacquainted with that and is really reaching out to the world and, and exploring, which brings about the creativity. It's not that creativity is just there and then we explore. They're interdependent. And we've lost our capacity to explore because our minds and our nervous system is so full of shoulds and shouldn'ts and knowledge and book knowledge and seeking for a concept. We're not able to reach out and touch the actual and watch the magic of the energy of creativity arise because the universe responds when we reach out. And when we reach out and touch the universe, 
the universe itself is creative. It's creativity itself. And so when we reach out in a gesture of creativity and exploration, we are that too. And in so-called bipolar disorder, we're in touch with a different order of the universe instead of thinking and planning and goals and success and all of this we're just reaching out and exploring and seeing what happens when we do without having these preconceived goals and the moment becomes fulfilling in itself so all of this is just a misunderstanding of our own capacities as human beings Creativity isn't unique to somebody with a label of bipolar disorder. In my mind, we all need to recover back into our creativity. We all need to inquire into this. Not just look at certain groups of people and wonder about this anomaly of creativity. Why is it an anomaly? Why aren't we all that creative? And if we were, who would be there to judge one as more creative than the other? And who would be there to try to coax somebody back into functioning the way collectively we do now where would that collective be what would the world look like creativity is a natural human capacity that we're basically trained out of by virtue of sitting in a chair for six hours a day five days a week for 20 to 25 years Just that would make anyone not creative. Sitting in a chair and exploring with our concepts and not being fully immersed in the moment and exploring with our hands and eyes and hearts, which is how we came here, which is how we learned. And then we learn enough to be plopped into a chair and to be reacquainted with new kind of learning that's not learning at all. Learning itself is a creative act. We learn by playing. We learn by creating. And for some reason we've been duped into thinking that we learn through concepts. Life isn't a concept. And I'm not saying this to say that Bipolar disorder, as it's seen, is something perfect and healthy. It's not. To me, I think of it a million different ways. But one way is that as a whole humanity, we're not creative. So it's going to break free and through in some. Because it is the actual energy of the movement of life, especially through the human nervous system 
that is being repressed by false structures that have been sold to us as who we are. So really, in looking at that, so really, a person trained as, say, a researcher or a scientist looking at this doesn't understand their own nature, their own creativity. Our own creativity, which we have access to any moment, has been replaced with 10 years of higher education, of sitting in a chair and looking at books, mostly. We don't even know how to use our own bodies. We just sit there. And sitting is now the leading cause of death. And just move our eyes back and forth. And we think that that's learning. And since we've overemphasized that, and success means sitting and moving your eyes back and forth, looking at a book... Until you can help the ones that didn't subscribe to that process. And then some people get trained in something like EMDR where people who are traumatized sit there and move their eyes back and forth to try to reintegrate. It's just sort of backwards. It's like health is moving your eyes back and forth looking at a page. And then another problem with this is that the study is to support people in their strength of creativity by learning the mechanism. Well, one of the things that definitely kills creativity is medication. So it's like saying, we're going to kill your creativity with this, but then at the same time we're going to come in and try to help you in your strength of creativity. So it's kind of backwards. It's like, we just killed your creativity and now we're going to do a study to help you with your creativity. As long as it's not too creative. It's just creative and you're still able to function and all do and do all this and that. And it's nothing against functionality. It's just creativity has a completely different function than the ones that we value in society. And if it were truly allowed to flower and manifest... It would take its right place. It wouldn't just be on the walls of museums or on the walls of the waiting room at the psychiatrist's office, a piece of art, but each movement of our life, the smallest move of our finger would be a creative act. And that is what the nervous system is attempting to recalibrate us to. The energy of the human nervous system, of our original way of being, not some anomaly, not some perturbation, not some whatever. And the universe, the energy of human consciousness is perturbed. It is totally perturbed with how we are using the human nervous system. It's not in alignment with our nature. So I would say 
We need to study the scientific brain to understand the mechanism of wanting to mechanize everything. When creativity is that which would break down mechanisms and perhaps seeing the danger of mechanizing children, turning them into machines of this brutal construct. So I may have more to say about that later when I look at my notes, but for now. It's kind of like how it's very dangerous to not go with the flow of traffic, to drive too slow, to drive wildly. But if you know that the end of the highway leads to driving off a massive cliff, then it's actually not too dangerous to go with the flow, even if one is in the middle of a hundred-lane highway. It would be least dangerous to navigate one's way off the highway, even though it might disrupt everyone's flow. But when enough people start doing that, eventually people start to catch on that that's not the way to go. And there's another flow that starts flowing with, everyone starts flowing with it. And there's all this talk about getting into flow and blah, blah, blah. We will be sold this new flow, but we can figure it out for ourselves. the only way it's real. So I've been driving for half an hour in this electric car and I haven't used any miles. It's in a flow right now. I'm pretty sure the battery gets charged by the rotation of the wheels and I'm on a highway. And I'm not running the air conditioning and yeah, quite impressed with this Chevy Bolt. And I also feel with creativity, when somebody labeled with bipolar disorder connects with creativity as ultimately they do, that's part of the main factor of it is connecting with the creative energy that simultaneously suspends and dismantles a lot of the ego structure which is a necessary co-occurrence for creativity to be. It's a different co-occurrent order. It's an order of creativity co-occurring with the order of the ego which then appears to ego structured people as disorder but it's dismantling the ego which is a false order. But then when somebody gets connected with that, 
when the pressure of all the programming is starting to close in on that person again, it's scary because it's the scariest thing on earth to lose one's original creativity, to lose the natural, free, fluid, dynamic state of the nervous system. And as children, it happens so slowly, over time we don't even notice, but when we get so in touch with that and it starts retreating, we definitely most of the time go kicking and screaming because it's one of the only things that really matters is having a free, fluid and dynamic creative human brain and nervous system. That's what can create one's life, change one's life, change the world. Not by staying in line with this structure that we all share and co-create with as the world that we see now. If children could put up a fight and they knew what was happening to them, they would go kicking and screaming too. But they don't know. But the collective consciousness of children is starting to catch on. They're starting to refuse to participate in this. We always think of things in terms of personal illness and disease, but it's not. It's a collective phenomenon. It's a crisis in the consciousness of humanity. And we see something like bipolar disorder as a problem when really it's consciousness trying to break through the very problem which is the structure that has been superimposed on our nervous system and is directing us like marionettes and we feel like this is self-control and this is free will but it's not it's just superimposition of programming and then when that breaks away we feel out of control we feel like we don't have free will we feel like something else is controlling us but really we're just getting reacquainted with what it feels to be fluid and dynamic and not contrived by these memes reverberating through our nervous system of should, shouldn't. All of our self-talk is these programs and then we've made the mistake of identifying that with our actual separate self when we all share this. There might be a slight different flavor to what's happening in self-talk, but it's all the same. And then that's what we want to protect. That's what we try to stitch back together when somebody has one of these creative crises. And the real tragedy is that we all aren't creative not how to get the one who broke through into creativity, drag them back kicking and screaming into all the constructs that we're supposed to subscribe to as our behavior. And I'm not saying this as 
an excuse for the behaviors that are harmful. But really, these constructs in society, these programs, these memes, these are harmful to self and others. But we don't see it that way. We don't see it as harming ourselves by thinking that we're separate, by thinking we have all this separate personal thinking when we don't. It's all shared. And then a person labeled with bipolar disorder breaks through into original insight and creative perception and creative action. And it only seems strange because nobody around us is used to that or acts in that way. And the point is if we're not moved off that way of operating, we would all be operating that way and it would be a different world. If we were never moved off that way of operating from five years old, we would all be like a person who is magically manic but nobody would see it as odd because we would all be that magical, energetic, creative, generous, in awe, in wonder, sharing, altruistic, empathetic. And then when a person goes into that state as a temporary state because we're not all in that stage of being and don't all embody those traits, as one is sucked back into the vortex of societal functioning, it's the most terrifying thing ever. And many people don't survive it. Many people don't want to go back. Many people end their life. And we don't see this as the mechanism that is leading to children ending their lives, being moved off their own creativity, their own understanding, the power of their own nervous system to figure things out. We all want to be able to discover for ourselves, to do things for ourselves, to find out for ourselves. We don't want things told to us and done to us to the point where some of us will just do it to ourselves. I feel some of the creative energy can be utilized to understand lifestyle design that is in alignment with the creative energy. So, for example, one could have that extreme state of creativity and then on the other side of it get labeled with a mental illness like bipolar disorder and then recover in terms of trying to just function in society 
with the measures of functionality that society has decided. And then eventually one is going to have a so-called relapse because the creative energy is energy that allows us to see other ways of being and other ways of doing and other ways of acting and other ways of all these things that are actually not resonant with the structure of society and what is now called functioning. So some of that energy is to create something else in terms of one's lifestyle. In terms of what one does as one goes about one's day. What matters? What's important? And the trouble is that a lot of times that doesn't leave as much room for making money, but that can be sorted out eventually too. What matters is this creativity. Putting money first is actually a denial of this creative energy and would symbolically and actually turn off the creativity of the nervous system. Because creativity doesn't have a reason doesn't have a motive. It discovers that which the creativity is doing as one is doing it. And one can be in touch with that so much that eventually, at some point, one might see, oh, well, this could be helpful and put it into this kind of business structure to help other people. And that's part of what the creativity is trying to create a different way of living, a different way of sharing, a different way of manifesting through one's own creative process and one's own creative understanding. It creates a completely different life. So the process of recovery just fitting back into this little hole, this peg in a hole of society is the denial of the creativity. And I'm not saying there's no place for functioning in society. At this point, it's definitely about learning to walk in both worlds. But what I'm saying with that is part of the creative energy is to explore, to ambitiously have exploratory behaviors around creating a life that is more in alignment with the creative energy. When the creative energy bumps up against all the blocks of functioning, it, it gets distorted and that's when it can get channeled through ego voices that can come across even stronger than the sort of regular angry person mad at everything in society. It'll be even more mad because it's mad that this real energy that matters, this creativity is being messed with. And it's not just mad for itself. A creative energy is not personal. So when one is angry about that creativity being distorted, one is speaking for all the children that are about to be warped, for all the children that are currently being warped, for all the children that are now adults that have been warped away from this. So it's very intense. But it has to be intense to break this dullness that we've all been hypnotized and mesmerized by. This dullness of living uncreatively to earn a living to buy stuff 
that few people have created. Not that there's no place for buying stuff. Of course, we all need to buy stuff. We don't know how to look into ourselves and unfold our potential. So this process, this creative energy comes in and forces us to look at our potential. It hands us our potential on a silver platter. But we don't know how to take it. We don't know how to grasp it. We don't know how to grab it. We don't know how to use it. We don't know how to move with it, as it, in it. Because we've been doing a different dance for our entire life. And that's part of the point, is that it's because we've been doing such a contrived dance for our whole life that when this natural decontriving process comes in, it's chaotic. If we were never contrived, it wouldn't be chaotic. We would have just been naturally unfolding and flowering and creating and manifesting our lives as we went on. And hopefully one day there'll be a time where we're just not indoctrinated into this contrivance of our nervous system, this congealing of our gestures into a very narrow band of acceptable behaviors because we have this whole social programming that would stop us and again it's not about behaving wildly it's if we were always natural we wouldn't be operating based on this should shouldn't second guessing wondering are we doing it right according to these holograms that we have in our nervous system directing us and stopping us and this creative energy is communication itself but since we've spent 10 to 20 to 25 years away from that order that natural way some of us connect back with it and break down that false structure not by an act of will an act of will is part of the program then those who are still in the programs wonder what is wrong with this person but the chaos will subside and again, it's not by active will that it will subside, but by understanding. By having creative perception about this creative energy itself, by wondering about it, by looking, by seeing it in operation. And in that state of so-called mania, we can really see some kind of creative energy in operation. It's mysterious, it's magical, it's powerful. And that ecstatic sense would even out over time because we would be used to it. We would be used to that level of energy which we then feel as an ecstasy because 
we don't usually have that level of energy running through our nervous system. It's being dulled out by all the self-talk that wastes all the energy. So when there's no self-talk, but just self in touch with the moment. The moment talks to us and through us. And at first it feels very ecstatic, but when that energy creates all the new neurons and neural pathways and structures of gesture and behavior and integrates, then we just get to live out our life and be surprised and in awe of the dynamic richness of being a human being. But it takes time for all that energy to create all the neural pathways and brain areas that we're missing that have atrophied due to programming. Our brains have been pruned. They've been over pruned by our education. They've been pruned in a certain direction to train us to be functions instead of creators, instead of manifestors. And when we're not creators and manifestors, we're full of emotions, we're full of ego because it's a reaction to not being creative. High mood is creativity and low mood is blocks to creativity or creativity being mechanized or imposed upon. So can we remove those blocks? Not how to mechanize creativity or what is the mechanism, but what are the mechanisms that get in the way? It's not about adding something or figuring out something that's being added. It's just about removing the blocks. Creativity might be the essential key. And one of the most essential things to create is one's own understanding. And when one first goes into something like a bipolar consciousness, one understands that one doesn't understand anything. And in that, all of a sudden, we have access to so much meaning and understanding. It's unbelievable. Because all the false understandings have been at least temporarily suspended. It's like removing the blindfold. We all have a blindfold, it's a mindfold. Our mind is folded up with all the structures and memes that we've been given. And we don't even realize we don't want that. We don't want what we've been given. We wanna look for ourselves. And the universe gives us that gift to look for ourselves. And once we catch a glimpse, life will never be the same. And there's so many people who are operating in so-called regular consciousness who want that glimpse so badly. They meditate, they do yoga, they take 
psychoactive substances, they fast, they do all these things. But we don't understand. There's nothing we need to do to get that glimpse. And when we do nothing to get that glimpse, oftentimes we get labeled with a mental illness. But if we consciously are trying to get that glimpse through some kind of volitional activity, then when we get the glimpse, we understand it that we got the glimpse because we were doing this spiritual stuff, so it must be spiritual, and maybe that actually helps one catch the glimpse without going crazy. But one can glimpse without doing anything as well, and without another context of understanding, that glimpse can drive one nuts. It's like seeing how everything really works and then being dragged back to the level of consciousness of how things are contrived to work. And it feels like war. The universe turns the ignition, but we still have to drive the car. Right now I'm driving by two huge bank buildings. And it's all about money. And I'm creating a bank of understanding and meaning. And I'm banking on that. Because nowadays we can create money just by typing in numbers on a computer. But we can never create meaning by just typing in numbers on a computer. So it's important to be able to create that which cannot be created by just a human finger putting in numbers in a computer. And the more we create money, just a human typing numbers in a computer, the sooner a human will push the button that destroys the planet over the numbers typed into a computer. So it's the same gesture, just a finger moving towards a computer. When we're not directing our intention, our gesture into bringing meaning to our nervous system because we have all these programmed memes moving through our nervous system, it blocks the meaning. The meaning is so subtle, it's not even perceptible to our overtrained eyes. Our eyes are trained to seek meaning outside the moment and not see the infinite meaning ever present in each unfolding moment. I wonder if Creativity is a type of pressure. Sort of like how sound waves create pressure on the eardrum, which creates sound or translates sound waves into sound in the brain. And perhaps we all have this creative pressure by with all the pressures of functioning and what we're supposed to be doing we lose the sense of the pressure of creativity. 
And then that pressure can build up to the point where it drives one crazy in a certain way. When one of the senses isn't operating properly, it can drive us crazy. I've read that people who lose their hearing in one ear due to the bones not functioning properly can actually feel a pressure inside the skull and it can be all consuming. Or if someone's hearing isn't working properly and it creates that high-pitched tinnitus sound. It's just a small little high-pitched sound but it can be all-consuming. So perhaps there's a subtle pressure of creativity that when not integrated, when not working properly, it can sort of drive us crazy. I've never thought about that before, I don't know, but... Then the creativity becomes all-consuming as opposed to just another one of our dynamic senses. We have our senses, but... and our body, and when we're using it in an integrated way, perhaps it creates an epiphenomena of wonder, awe, creativity, beauty, and all these dimensions that we feel are just for a few minutes on the weekend. But when so-called bipolar happens, it becomes all-consuming because of how it's not integrated into daily life. Another email I got was from Jamie Wheel on the neuroscience of happiness. And he was talking about four factors. Heightened creativity, accelerated problem solving, accelerated learning, and higher happiness and well-being. So if creativity, accelerated creativity, or higher creativity is part of happiness, and people labeled with bipolar have heightened creativity, then maybe that energy of heightened creativity is an attempt to create happiness. Not by the ego will, but by the energy that is possible to run through the human nervous system. And it says accelerated problem solving. I don't feel that that's necessarily something that is separate from heightened creativity. Creativity, of course, can solve problems better than how we usually attempt to solve problems just by re organizing things in the mind, just old bits of information, trying to figure out how to reorganize them in a way that will 
solve a problem, but really this mental manipulation is what creates problems. So by trying to solve a problem in that way, it's nearly impossible. And if it does solve a problem, it usually creates more problems to be solved. So heightened creativity is problem solving, but in a playful and creative way and not by focusing on the problem, just by creating, it solves problems. The problem is we're not able to be creative. And if we were, we wouldn't have so many problems. The ego structure is not creative. And then we use that structure to try and solve problems. It creates more problems. But if a creative energy comes in, we're able to solve those problems from that level of energy that just sort of dissolves problems, but not even by focusing or trying to solve problems. And accelerated learning. Well, creativity is learning. Learning is play. We learn by playing, exploring, doing, figuring things out, not being told. So the ego is just full of things that we've been told, full of sound bites that we've been told. And then we use those bits we've been told to navigate the world. And it's completely inadequate and creates problems. And then we try to use that same mechanism to solve these problems. And we think that that is some form of learning. And by learning enough knowledge, we might be able to solve our problems. But it's all part of that same level of thought. Old thought. Creativity implies something new. And only something new can solve the old by bringing something new about to allow the old to fall away. And of course, when we're being creative, learning, and supposedly solving problems, we have a higher sense of well-being. We're not just living in the field of problems. We're living in the field of creativity in which problems just naturally dissolve. We're able to dissolve our problems by virtue of our own creativity. And of course, we feel more adequate. We feel more strong because we don't have to seek outside ourselves to solve the problems. We just are creative and that naturally solves problems. And in that creativity, in that play, we learn. So creativity is the acceleration of learning which naturally solves problems and creates the epiphenomenon of well-being and happiness. They're not separate phenomena. So how do we be creative? Well, we just got to be creative. We got to create. And being creative creates creativity and learning, not learn enough in order to be creative. We have it all backwards. All of our words in our brain lead to this illusion of a separate me needing to learn enough in order to be creative. But we are that creative energy. The me isn't creative. There is a creative energy that dissolves the me which creates problems and lives in the field of problems. Come into my dream Let me show you what I've seen It's you and me I've seen As bipolar people, we're just protecting our creativity. And it's not our creativity. We're holding it sacred 
until the rest of humanity can catch on. I wonder how we afford the view. His creativity is for all. It's not a personal phenomenon. And we don't need to be supported in our recovery in having the strength of creativity put into some kind of strength-based thing. Its creativity is to support all of humanity. And it's not viewed in that way. So we're forced back into being supported into reattaching to egocentricity. Creativity is world-centric. And in bipolar, we become very receptive to all of these energies, but we aren't able to create with them. And then that's when it can cause information overload. Creativity is a mystery, and we are the key to unlocking our own mystery. I looked in my calendar this morning, and today is six months since that crisis I had in January, where I really felt this major PTSD flashback. And I put it in my calendar to remind myself that it's been six months because I was having a sort of typical rhythm of re-experiencing crisis every six to eight and a half months. So I wanted to have in mind when the six month mark was because I was planning to go to California and I did and I am still in California and I leave for home in six days and what a journey it has been because I had a little bit of that scary energy come back a month after the crisis in January and maybe it was about two months around one and a half months I think and so after that I decided to taper off my medications and I did that and then I've been off of them for seven weeks which is amazing and I feel great and I've been really busy here this last week so I won't really get to make that many videos and even when I get home I just want to really focus on being around the people that I've been away from for so long, so I won't make too many videos there either. So hopefully my next real wave of videos with myself will be in September-ish, when the weather starts getting crappy where I'm from, and maybe I'll have a new iPhone, and maybe a new computer to maybe make the quality a bit better for some reason I don't know why and then yeah and it's funny how one can just be going along doing something and not even realize something very simple that somebody pointed out to me that the iPhone camera the front camera is a lot crappier than the back camera the back camera is the 4k camera and the front one is just up to 720 and I don't think it really matters anyway because the bigger videos would take a lot longer to save and upload to YouTube and also 
take up a lot more memory on the phone, so it would take longer to upload to iCloud, blah, blah, blah. So it's not really important, but I just never realized that if I did want to make a better quality video, I'd have to flip the camera around, which makes it a little more difficult to tell if I'm in the middle of the thing. Not that that matters, but I just thought that was interesting how I never really thought about that. And it, it didn't really matter anyway, but interesting. So now I know, after a whole year, that if I wanted to make a better video with my iPhone, I'd have to use the front camera. I never quite understood that. And front camera as in the non-selfie cam, maybe that's the back camera, whatever. And I think in the last video I was talking about that article written about all these wonderful sound bites about making a decision to take medication and how it's misleading if applied to people with bipolar or schizophrenia diagnoses. And I don't think it actually implied that in the article, but on the tweet, it actually said why it's important for people with schizophrenia and bipolar to have meds as an important part of the treatment plan. And then the article is talking about decision-making. So I feel it's misleading because if it was an article about reasons to stay on medications after one had been basically forcibly put on them in the hospital, then that would be a different story. But it sounds to me like it's mainly people who actually did get to make a decision. And maybe that it includes some people with diagnoses of bipolar and schizophrenia labels, but in my case, it wasn't this decision that I made. I was just put on them in the hospital. And I'm not saying that to change that fact, nothing can change that fact, and I wouldn't even change it anyways. But it's just misleading to think that everybody who goes on psych meds just makes this wonderful informed decision. And something that I didn't talk about was how if one starts a medication, even after a couple of weeks, it can be very difficult to taper off the medication. So if somebody starts taking it and they're like, I don't want to take this, it doesn't make me feel good, and then doesn't take it anymore, there could actually be worse side effects of coming off the medications or worsening of symptoms, supposedly, that's actually just withdrawal from the medication. So the body becomes addicted to the medication very quickly. And then when one tries to not take it anymore, if the risks and the side effects are worse than the original distress or trouble, then the distress and trouble can actually get worse than the original because of the addictive effects of the medication. And then one thinks, well, maybe I do need this medication. Things are getting worse. So it can actually cause a lot more problems. And then it's actually seen as justifying further treatment or switch to a different medication or, or the need for medication. So to imply that one is really making an informed decision is is not really correct. And Dr. Kelly Brogan talks about this. She talks about how 
she realized that she wasn't giving people informed consent when they went on meds. She wasn't telling them, if you take this for more than a couple weeks or a couple months, you might actually have worse symptoms or worse manifestations of this distress than you did before. For illustration purposes, somebody might have anxiety and go on a medication and then afterwards have suicidal thoughts and trying to come off the medication and then think, oh wow, I really need this medication. But really, it's the body withdrawing from the medication. And in my case, for example, and I don't really think about this that often because it was so long ago, and I've been more focused on the journey, I was having really terrible so-called psychosis and I was put in the hospital and I was put on the medication and it gave me acesthesia and I wanted to just jump off a bridge and at the same time really not wanting to jump off a bridge. So it nearly killed me. And that's not really a withdrawal effect, that was just a really terrible side effect. And then I had flat affect and it was very difficult for me to advocate that I need to go back to the hospital in order to change the meds. And instead of thinking, well, this medication had a really bad effect on you, maybe you don't need them at all. It's just, well, we'll put you on something different. So the initial medication making me so much worse justified trying a different one that apparently made me better. But maybe it just made me better from the initial worsening of that first medication that I was put on that really did not agree with me whatsoever. I really wonder if if I would have just been put on short-term antipsychotics for a week or two to reconnect me to reality and then taken off of them, if I would have needed anything at all. And I'll never know. I'm just really wondering. And maybe I would have needed something. Now I'm supporting all of this with hearty nutritional micronutrients and I feel a lot better for sure and my main concern for the next step is when I go back home will it be information overload will I feel bombarded will it feel super noisy will it feel like too much information that the micronutrients aren't really enough to help my nervous system process and it's not like medication would be so magical that it would help me process information. It wouldn't. It would actually just numb me out to processing the information overload, which I feel still kind of accumulates as allostatic load in the body and the subconscious mind, which just eventually builds up to a crisis because the medication can no longer numb out on all the information because the information still goes somewhere. There's still an aspect of our being that is processing something if we see something that is triggering, yet we're not triggered because of the meds. Our body still senses that. It's still afraid. And it actually makes it worse in a way because it has to be processed later. And for example, if somebody is drugged and then suffers some kind of trauma because of something, after the drug wears off, they'll be traumatized. So if somebody gets drugged and then raped, for example, when the, med when the drug that put the person unconscious wears off, it's not like the body doesn't remember. It's not like there's not some aspect that did have an awareness of what was happening. 
So in that same way, when withdrawing from a long-term psych med, all that trauma that got delayed by virtue of numbing oneself out with medication is going to actually present to the surface. And that's part of what makes the withdrawal more difficult. So it's not that meds are bad, it's just it's not the solution to the problem and everything will still continue to pile up and as it piles up and it's not really dealt with and the moment isn't even dealt with because we're not able to see what we need to face and communicate that builds up over time and then somebody has a relapse and I've had four relapses in the last two and a half years and partly because I was working in peer support and it's really traumatizing to see what's happening to people like me. And then I was on meds, so that would just build up really quickly. And then no amount of medication can stop one from really feeling and seeing what's happening there. So that's why I really don't think I can go back to it and look at it because it's just so awful. I can sit at a distance and talk about it, but I don't think I really would last that long going back to work in it. And that's why I really prefer this form of passive advocacy, because if I'm not able to communicate, then it's of little use. And I read another disturbing tweet saying that addictions are now described as a brain disorder and not a behavioral problem. And I actually read this article that I didn't go into too much because I could have probably just talked about it for an hour and I don't want to go on and on too much about things, even though I do. It was actually in a Scientology magazine talking about how they're changing everything like addictions to be brain disorders just so they can have best practice, best treatment, first line of treatment as medication. And it's really sad to me. But then they'll be, well, at least people are getting treatment because because if we agree to take meds, they'll give us a lot of other things. But if we don't, then we can just be homeless on the street. We don't get housing and things like that. If we're self-directing what type of medicine we want to take, even if it is something that is not patented and sold by a legal drug dealer called a doctor or a psychiatrist. So relapse, in a way, is tripping over the crutch of medication. It's a crutch that can help to buy time to figure out how to face certain things, but it's not going to stop it from coming back indefinitely. Maybe in some people, but even if even if if a person was able to really if a person is able to be on meds and then really move into dealing with the things that one had a sense were were leading to crisis or struggle while on the meds then maybe one will never have a relapse but if one actually 
goes into situations that are going to cause more distress, things are going to pile up really quickly. So I was on medications for three and a half years before I had any so-called relapse because I was just sort of having fun, working at a medical office, no real stress, being really social and, and laughing a lot. And then I went into peer support and seeing all that happening really bothered me. And no amount of medication could stop that resonating with that trauma of what's happening to people because it's happened to me and then it happened again in April of 2016 which was just as bad as that very first time which could have then justified another med change well it was a med change that did that to me and so yeah there's a lot to say about that stuff but I just don't really like how it's purported as not risky when those types of medications, especially the long-term antipsychotics, nearly killed me twice. So to act like it's an informed decision that the risks are better than the the risks are better than the side effects is not true. I had to be taken off those drugs really quickly in order to not end my life. So, and there's a problem there when the psychiatrist has the power to just give it in a setting like a psych ward where one doesn't have a choice. And had I had to stay on that medication and been discharged on that medication, I probably would have ended my life. And people do that. And we would never try to run a marathon with a crutch. And life really is a marathon. So... If somebody gets injured, they use a crutch for the, a while and then they ditch the crutch. I really feel there's a time to throw away the crutch. And it's not a frivolous thing. It has to be done very, very carefully. If we don't throw away the crutch, it's very difficult to dance in all directions. And I also want to throw a little game element into this video. Because it's been so boring and repetitive. So... The game element is that I've been thinking of creating an altruism quarter game and just putting a note with a quarter and if someone finds it, follows the clue, they get some sort of prize. So I found a bill that says and I wonder if anyone can answer the question. Who is it that wrote that? And if you can, you get a prize. And I'll likely include this other letter that I took a picture of at some point and ask who wrote that. So we'll see if anyone knows the answer or if anyone finds the same thing that I just showed. And that would be, that would be another prize. It reminds me of that movie Serendipity. And I would like to live more by serendipity, synchronicity, eureka, and that other term that kind of relates to that. And then the last thing I want to talk about today is a couple of days ago, it flashed in my mind that when I was young, really young, I had 
sort of this little file of papers or I had these little books that I would call my importance. And I just had this sense that these papers I had and this information was really important. And I would draw a computer book like that character Penny had in the cartoon Inspector Gadget. And I thought it was so cool. And now we do have computer books in terms of tablets and smartphones. So I just really flashed on how I was really born with this awareness of information. And at home I have a whole shelf full of books and then a whole shelf full of things I've printed off and collected in terms of research in health and now in mental health. So I just thought it was really interesting how as a child I wasn't dancing around or anything like that. I had this sense of these importance and it was just always there and I've always had that. And maybe I'll talk about that more later, but I just really was surprised by that realization that I've always had my notebooks of information even before I could write. It was always a way that I organized myself, including all the world around me. That's good enough for today. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.